always great to get to preach here at KT, and my gratitude to our senior minister, Colin Dye. I'm sure you heard, or if you haven't, I would really encourage you to go and hear last night's message and this morning's message, a two-part series on regaining our spiritual vision. Um, I'm not going to be following on from that message, but there'll be some similar overlap points here and there. But I've decided to run with a message, living your passion, living your passion. My goal today is not to get you all excited about something that will maybe last until you got on the bus home. And then when you get home, forget all that you've thought about and, and imagined with God. But I do want to encourage you to sit back and begin to dream with the Lord, to say, Father, what are you speaking to me today? What are you going to be doing in my life over the coming year? What can I trust you for? And the reality is that life is not straightforward in such a way that it's all going to be swimmingly easy for us. And we all know that. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, resolutions have found a a place of wish we could do rather than intend to do because so often life takes over. So often difficult situations spring up. Some are great. Some are extremely challenging. Some are just repetition, day in, day out type of events. But I want to ask you a serious question when we're talking about living your passion. Are you living with purpose or are you living with life happening to you? See, both will contain troubles. Both will contain you needing to deal with difficult issues, but one contains purpose that infuses every aspect of your life, and the other is just going from one crisis to the next crisis, being thrown around like a boat that washes to and fro. So when I talk about your passion, some of you might say, you know, I'm not one of those passionate type people. I'm not out loud expressive. I'm more reflective thinking. And that's fine, because when I say your passion, I mean your purpose. What has God called you to be in terms of your life? When we think of the movie Passion, the Passion of the Christ, we're talking about Jesus fulfilling his purpose. We're not talking about him getting excited about going to the cross. We're talking about him understanding that the ultimate goal of his life, the potential of his life, was to achieve what God had set for him to achieve at the cross. I want to take for us today three pictures to try and set up my message for us. Luke 18, uh, Matthew 19, and then Matthew 11. Luke 18 is a, uh, verse 15 is, is a short clip, uh, a short scenario where Jesus is ministering, where he is amongst people, where he is uh, healing, where he's teaching, where he's sharing about life with people, revealing the Father to people. And in this context, people are bringing Everyone, they're bringing the sick, they're bringing the old, they're bringing the infirm, they're bringing those who need to be delivered, they're bringing those who need to hear this great news, and they're also bringing their kids. And their kids are being brought forward for Jesus to give a kiss and say hi and how are you doing and maybe pray a prayer of blessing. And the disciples stop them. And Jesus says to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's our first image. The second image is taken from Matthew 19. This is the story of the rich young ruler. This is a young man who's done very well in life. He has not only been successful in business, but it seems like he's been successful in developing his character, successful in um, 
in terms of obeying and honoring his parents, successful in terms of building a moral life, and so much so that when Jesus says to him, you know what, you need to go live the commandments out, he says, I've already done that, I've already lived that. But Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect or complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I think Jesus can make that call because he's giving the greatest invitation that any one of us could hear. To follow Christ is the greatest gift to us as mankind. Picture number three. This is taken from Matthew 11. Let me give you a little bit of a bigger context. In Matthew 9, we see Jesus grieving over the people that he sees before him, right at the end of the chapter, 34, 35 onwards. He sees that the people, though they are gathered in a big mass, are lost. They're part of a crowd. There's no purpose, there's no direction, there's no agenda for their lives. They're struggling, suffering, going through sickness and challenge and trial. And so he calls together his 12, he points them in the direction of this crowd and says, look, there needs to be more laborers out there because the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. And he calls 12 particular disciples who go on to be called apostles and sends them out. And at the same time as this sending out event occurs, John the Baptist is languishing in prison. He's struggling. He's asking himself, was my life of purpose a waste of time? Was it what God intended for me to achieve? Did I do everything that Jesus or the Father had intended for me? And he's not sure. The reason he's not sure is because he's hearing different things about this Jesus character. He's hearing that he's causing controversy amongst the Pharisees. He's hearing that he's stirring up some trouble amongst the lawyers and the scribes, uh, apparently. People are speaking negatively of him. These are obviously people that are anti the message that Jesus is bringing. But Jesus says to his disciples, go and speak to John. Tell him what you're seeing. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The reason I gave you the bigger context is it would be really easy for us to assume that it was Jesus doing all of this healing. Now, of course, he is the primary example of a healer, preaching the gospel, raising the dead, and so on. But the context is he's literally just sent 12. It's no longer just him extending the kingdom of God. These 12 people have now stepped into their purpose. They are now going out to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead. His life is being multiplied in and through their lives. And so this is being extended. The kingdom is beginning to take grip, take root in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. In a similar similar passage we see in Luke 10, we see a scenario where 72 have been sent out. And when they come back, they've full of joy. They're proclaiming, look, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then notice this next phrase, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
the disciples did something in realizing their purpose that made Jesus happy, that made Jesus excited, that made Jesus rejoice in the Holy Spirit. And more than that, he says this, you know what, Lord, I'm, Father, I'm grateful that you saved this revelation for these men who would receive this revelation like children. We started out with the image of children. We come back to the image of these men who are out carrying out their purpose, but Jesus is recognizing that they're doing it with a childlike faith. And he's saying, thank you, Lord, that you withheld it from those who thought that they were great, who held themselves up as high religious authorities, who believed that they had the education, the status, uh, the, the command of people's respect to be these men of power for the hour. But no, these disciples, these rough men, these fishermen were out fulfilling the purpose of God for their lives. That's encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. All of you see me when I'm here at KT as a minister in the church, and if you've joined in the last one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years, you would have no idea of the testimony of where God has taken me from and to. And maybe I'll share a bit as we're going today. But every one of us here live real lives. We've come from difficult places, and God has done a work in our hearts and done a work in our lives to bring us to a place where we can reveal Christ's glory, Christ's purposes. These three images, I want them to ho- you to hold them in your mind. We're going to look at them each individually. See, because each one of us in some way will go through being one of these three pictures in particular areas of our life right throughout our time here on the earth. The children. What I love about the story of the children is that Jesus is reinforcing yet again one more time that whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, slave, free, sexually and ethically immoral, wherever you are in life, you are called to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's including everybody in the invitation to the banquet. The doors are wide open. Come and feast at the table of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now the disciples, the disciples were much like you and me. They wanted to take Jesus and they wanted to elitize Jesus. They wanted his message, his time, his emphasis to be directed towards people who could understand, towards those who were perhaps serious about the teachings of Jesus or maybe they were going to be needing healing which would have demonstrated to everybody else about who Jesus really is. And yet Jesus says, hold on, hold on, hold on. You don't elitize me. Kids can come to me. In other places, he demonstrates. You can go to the woman caught in the act of adultery. You can go to the tax collector, Levi. You can go to every single example. Jesus permits people to come to him. I'm grateful that Jesus rebukes them for this. I'm grateful that he rebukes them because it reminds us that the message of Jesus is for everybody. Now, don't start freaking out because I'm going to develop the point as I go along. But people can have meaningful encounters with God, whatever their age, whatever their background. And many of us will also, time to time and time again, have to come back to the simple truths 
that are revealed in the story of the children. You know, maybe you might find yourself today in a situation where you're saying, you know what, I have been a a dedicated churchgoer for many, many years, if not decades. I've done my time. I've served my serve. I've given my money. You know, if I was to add up everything that I've given to God in the last decade or so, I could have bought myself a new car or something. You know, all of these kinds of reflections on your walk with Christ so far. But then at the same time, Jesus, where are you? What are you doing? I I don't feel like you hear my prayer. I don't feel like I've got that communion with you. What more do I have to do? And Jesus' answer is, come like a little child. Come back simply through faith. Believe me. Trust my promise. My love for you is unchanging, unswerving. It's open for you to receive. Come back like a child. Stop arguing about what you should or shouldn't be doing. Come back to the place where you realize I need to receive from you in a humble way. It's so true and important that we remember that kids can have an encounter with God. It was great to hear Sharon's testimony earlier, a 13-year-old having an encounter with God. You know, kids and young adults need experiences with God. I was talking to a 13-year-old boy yesterday. He was telling me about how he was really wrestling with his faith. He said to me, I don't think my faith is strong enough. I asked him why. He said, because I've got a friend who's dying of cancer and they haven't been healed yet. So I think it's my faith. Now I walked away from God for five years of my life for the same reason. I couldn't understand why someone in my life had cancer. But I looked at this kid in the eye, 13 year old who needed to know what God would say to him in that moment. I don't... I'm not saying that what I, what I said was God, but I could encourage him having been there. I said, you know what, my friend? I can't make a promise about whether your friend is going to be healed or not. But what I do know is that God remains God. And each day for you is a gift to show them and tell them that you love them. Use each wisely And you will have shown your faith to be strong, no matter how weak you might think you are. You have an opportunity, my friend, if you embrace that opportunity to love people, love this particular individual who may very well soon be taken from your life, to embrace the maturity of Christ at the age of 13, because everyone can have an encounter with God. Let me see in the next story a very important Reflection, the rich young man. Because every single one of us, whether we are young, old, male, female, rich or not, will face the same problem on the road to maturity in Christ that this young man faced. It's a question. We know it all so well, Matthew 6, 34, seek first the kingdom of God and everything will be added unto you, right? So we just think, oh yeah, okay, so God, if I seek first your kingdom, so I thought it, I thought I'm going to seek first your kingdom, so I'm therefore doing it. It's not the case. Will we really put him first? Building on that point that I was just making, maturity in the kingdom is not a function of age or life experience. Maturity in Christ is a function of how tender you'll make your heart towards the things of God in the light of your experiences. However great or heavy they may be. 
can't resist it. Some of us need to remind ourselves of that 20 years, 30 years in Christ. Are people seeing Christ in you when they are six months, one year, two years in the Lord? Are they more passionate six months in than you are 30 years in? If we're bored with God, maybe we need to think about one of the resolutions we're going to make for this year. Will we put him first? Now, I mentioned it might be a problem because if we do this, and it's a problem. Let me explain. I'll give you the frame. Just in the last point that I was talking about, I said, you know, it's so great that Jesus fought for his message not to be elitized because everybody can come. And we fight for that. You know, people are asking the questions these days, what about my gay friends? What about my alcoholic and drug addict friends? What about people who are atheists and Buddhists and Muslims and all of these different types of people groups? I hope you understand that race, age, sex, sexuality, None of these preclude you from receiving the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should never, ever be guilty of elitizing the message of Christ in that kind of a way. Let me go on to talk about the problem and then also to talk about a wider issue. We fight for the message of Jesus to be available to everybody... But then when we have ourselves received that message, before we are on this side of the fence trying to hold open the doors so that people can hear the gospel, but once we've heard the gospel, we jump in on the other side and we close a door. Which door are we closing? The challenge that I see far too often is this, is that people come to Christ And they say, because Jesus accepted me, he must keep accepting my sin. And we close the door, and we elitize our life priorities, our own sin, over following Jesus. We close the door, and the one on the other side of that door is Christ. The very one who we've just let into our lives, we're now saying, God, you are confined You have saved me, and that's great, and I now call you Savior, but I sure as heaven don't call you Lord. Maybe I can pray the Lord's Prayer, but the way I live my life has no bearing on the fact that you are my Lord and my Savior. The same Jesus who has liberated us from the control of sin at a great cost becomes the Jesus who we refuse to allow access to the part of our lives that we're not willing to sell or sacrifice, let alone follow him. And at the end of the day, that becomes a greater cost to ourselves. And in our culture, we need to be aware that we are institution and leadership averse. Okay? We understand that. It's one thing, though, to be cautious in your approach to the leadership of men and women. Although, of course, the gospel ultimately requires that we find a way to walk in respect and, and partnership with our leaders. But it's an entirely different thing to resist God. It's totally different. 
What we do when we resist God is we set ourselves on the throne of our hearts. We say, you save me, but I'm my Lord. If he's good enough to save you, he's good enough to be your Lord. I think some of you need to smile at me a little bit just to... (laughs) But do you not know that he is the perfect father? He is the one who has given us good gifts? Or do you still believe that old lie has God really said? With this rich young man, I've often wondered, why did Jesus not chase him? Why did Jesus not say, hey, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me help you with why you need to sell everything, you know, because I'm not going to compromise on that. I just, I think I can convince you that following me would be better. It's amazing that he doesn't. I probably would have tried to fight someone to do that. But Jesus is empowering his choice. If we aren't willing to sacrifice, can I caution you for your own sake and me as much as you? Is we can't allow that kind of a lifestyle to go on forever because the problem is is that we violate our own purpose when we do so. I've seen it time and again. When Jesus is not number one in your life, this is what we tell ourselves. We say to ourselves, one day... I'm going to live for Jesus' glory. But you see, we imagine that one day to be a compressed, squeezed, supernova experience. You know what a supernova is? When a star explodes and it's so bright that it blinds people around, da-da-da. We haven't seen one in our time because they're so old in terms of when they did happen. But we expect that one day to come where we just explode with the glory of God. But you know what's in front of that? Um, I just need to finish my education. I've got a degree that I need to get through. Oh, now I just need to get into my career. And, you know, because the career, the workplace culture really requires that you do extra time, you know I'm going to add extra hours just to be a shining example. And you know what? I'm getting really serious about reading my Bible and stuff. And so um, I, I make sure that people see that I bring my Bible out and I'm expressing my spirituality in front of them. And you know what? Um, I've also been really working on myself. I've been doing these courses, you know, because I want to get ready for marriage. I want to prepare myself. And so, you know, I've got ready. Um, and all of that stuff that I'm doing means that I don't really have time for God. But now maybe I do because, you know what, I'm realizing that if I really want to find my partner, you know, I would like for them to be a Christian. So, you know, what? I'm going to come and serve in the house of God. And this fire is starting to burn and, you know, that light is, that star is starting to explode. And then suddenly you meet that person, suddenly you're dating, suddenly you're engaged, suddenly you're married, suddenly you have kids, and suddenly where are you? What was your name again? Where did you move to? Oh, okay. Where's the passion for God gone? Compressed. Into maybe a, what, a one-year experience? So often it happens. And we deceive ourselves that it's going to happen tomorrow. If it doesn't happen today, it's not going to happen tomorrow. We need to really sit down and think about that. It's time for us to turn our lives over to him. See, the problem with the kingdom of God, and this is a problem, is that that seed, once it's in your life, it's going to grow. Encoded in the very nature of that seed is the purpose of God. 
It's a simple effect of the kingdom of God operating in your life that you will go from being a child to being someone wrestling with the issue of, is God going to be God in my life or not? To being one of these third group of people, the people that are living out your purpose, to living out who God created you to be. I remember when I was in that five-year period away from God, at the bottom of about my 80th pint for the week, that I used to sit there and talk to the Christians I lived with. I don't know why I was living with Christians. I despised them. But I was talking to them. I was like, yeah, you lot. Anyway, you're not serious about Christ because Jesus would be more than just Sunday. He would be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And if I'm ever going to go back to following God, then it needs to be seven days a week. Well, you know, I was making a bold declaration, but I also believe that there was something of the seed of the kingdom of God still operating in my life. And heaven above knows that when you come to Kensington Temple, seven days a week of your life. <laughs> Amen. We see these third group, they made a decision to follow Jesus. It was no, by no means a mark of perfection or of superstardom. They were not been there, done my 15 years in seminary, done my PhD and doctorate and written thousands of papers. Now I can go out and preach the gospel. These were guys who had literally six months earlier had been fishing a few months with Jesus. Now they're out there about to go preach the gospel. Nowhere near where they could be or would be after the word of God had been working in their life, but they were available. Are you available? Is God first in such a way that you will make yourself available? And they're where Jesus needs them to be, ready to embrace the opportunity that he wants them to seize. And that, for me, is wisdom. Everything that I've said today, please, if I have said something that is a reflection of your life, where you're at right now, and a decision you're making that you know is taking you away from the things of God, please have the wisdom to hear, because you know what? You might have the privilege of choice, but you don't have the privilege of determining outcome. The outcome of your decision is the same as the outcome of the decision of someone else who made the same decision. You make a decision to be physically abusive to somebody, then you are going to end up in prison. It is a predictable outcome, consequences. Christians have become afraid of consequences. We need to understand that there are consequences. The ultimate consequence of spiritual death has been dealt with, but we still need to be wise in how we're walking today. And so to come back to briefly to touch on the other point is this, that we start out as children, but we are to grow through the experiences of life where we're going through difficult times and needing to put God first and come into this place of availability and maturity. Each step, we need to be becoming more like Christ. Now, Christ is not some reflection of what we would like him to be. Christ is God. He's holy. He's truth. He's righteousness. He's love. And so if there's sin in your life, you need to deal with it to become like Christ as best as you can, walking in the grace of God, saying, God, you know what? I used to be struggling with this issue as a dominating control of my life, but now you're my Lord. I might still well be wrestling with it, but my primary definition is I'm a Christian. I want to serve Jesus, and I'm going to keep walking forward. I'm going to keep stepping because that seed is still growing in my life. Maybe you get it. What I'm trying to say is that our passion is really about our purpose. You know, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, he was giving us the ultimate statement of the purpose of our lives. Not a one-size-fit-all statement. He's saying that you find your full fulfillment in you as a person when you're doing 
all that you do as unto me. You're doing it for my glory. You're doing it so that my name would be made great. That's what Jesus is saying to us. So what is God saying to you for 2017? I want to talk to you about three areas. I'll do this briefly because I'm conscious that I have got carried away with speaking. I love preaching. Three areas. Reflect on first the place of intimacy for yourself between you and God. What is that place of intimacy? Where is the time that you're spending with him in prayer, word, worship, preaching to myself as much as to yourselves? But we're called to live that out as a practical expression. And we need to remember that we have a problem called dinner. And if you have dinner, I love having dinner. In fact, I love cooking. Like, I've cooked a big feast for Christmas. It was so much food that we ate for three days. It was awesome. <laughs> and I used to think of myself as super efficient when it came dinner time. Cook, sit down, eaten inside five minutes, table cleaned, onto the next thing. Great. Uh, then I got married. <clears throat> now, for me, I like to move on from the table so that I can go and do something. If, if it's hanging out with Rebecca, that's great. But away from the table, sitting at the sofa, maybe. Whereas her culture, her family, let's sit at the table. Dirty plates there, fine. Let's take 15, 20, 30 minutes to eat. It's fine. Let's talk for a few hours at the table. I'm thinking, the table is uncomfortable. Come on, let's go. <laughs> so we've got the problem with the table because Jesus... Some of us think of Jesus as coming to live on the inside of us, and that's true and that's correct. But he comes alongside. been doing some Greek studies, doing my master's, and there's one word that talks about him coming alongside us. Now, it's much harder to keep walking with someone alongside you when you're doing something wildly different to what they want to do. Sweetie, I want to go sit at the sofa. No, I want to stay here at the table. Jesus, I want to go sit. No. <laughs> no, no, Jesus, don't do sin, bro. You know, we've got to understand that we are walking with Jesus, not making him do what we want to do as if he was on the inside of us, directed around by our will, but we're walking in partnership with him according to his plan and purpose for our lives. Second, real quick on rest. Most of you, if you did write resolutions, were because you had some time. You had some time to sit down, relax, refresh, get charged up, get energized, away from work, away from your normal routine, and in that place, you got inspired about the dreams that God had placed in your life. Now, just learn the lesson from that. If we got so inspired from the place of rest, we need to keep making room for rest in our lives to keep inspired. Because we get inspired, and then we run until we're tired. We run until we're flat, exhausted, and then we're like, God, where am I at? Oh, well, you left your rest behind 24 days ago, not 24 hours ago. Where's your rest at? And in that place, be refreshed and renewed in who Christ calls you to be. Maybe you should make intimacy with God the primary focus of your life. But second, the place of relationship. You cannot do this walk with God on your own. We need meaningful connections. Kathy put it great. We had a chat about some of the themes that I'd be preaching on, so I don't really need to reiterate what she's saying. But most of us do this. A friend offends us, you are a toxic person, I don't want you in my life. Wait, they might actually be being a friend. And if you go ahead chopping all of your friends off for saying stuff you don't like, you're going to end up with no friends. And I'm, I'm realizing from personal difficult experiences right now that isolation in later life causes major, major issues around depression, anxiety, suicidal tendencies, and all of those kinds of issues. Cannot afford to be isolated. 
And in that context, you need to think about dealing with your offense. What I love in what Jesus said is, blessed are you if you are not offended because of me. He didn't say, blessed are you if you're offended. I'm not offended, Gabriel. Because we know we're not supposed to be offended. But Are you not? Are you sure you're not? Sure? Because offense is not about whether you tell me you're offended or not. Offense is about what you're doing with your life right now. I mean, I know some people that should be leading disciples, 10, 20, 30 people. They should be bringing people to Christ. They should be carrying ministries. Where are they at? Sitting down. I'm not offended. I know that offense can push you out of your purpose. Offense can strip you from what God has intended you to be and become. Whatever the cost, don't be offended. Deal with your offense before God because we need to deal with our offenses to keep our relationships on fire and loving. Jesus said, by your love for one another, they'll know you're my disciples. And finally, intimacy, relationships, serving. You need to work on your intimacy with God. You need to work on the friendships you're building around you. There is no such thing as an individual Christianity. And third, where are you serving? If you're not taking your time and investing it for the benefit of others, taking your gift and investing it for the benefit of others, whether it's in a context like this, I mean, some of these stewards, they were here last night until quarter to one, cleaning up after everyone had left the building. And then they were here this morning at nine o'clock setting up for you to come in for the 11 o'clock and, and so on. There's one or two families that just inspire me amongst the many hundreds of families that are serving. You know, one of them was here with their eight-month-old daughter and their four sons until quarter past midnight. And then he was back here in the morning serving the next day. Can you believe it? Oh, I would never do that because I need to put my family first. Remember that problem that I was talking about where we try to condense our supernova experience into the convenient time between when I really got serious about God and when I got a family? We need to break out of that. Yes, the family is a place of service, but we serve Jesus first. And if you want to be a ministry family, you need to make sacrifices as a family. The family should be willing to make sacrifices, not be the sacrifice. That needs to be very clear. We've seen too many families blow themselves up as a consequence. But what we are called to do for the Lord comes first. Whatever context. Are you willing to pay the prices? Are you willing to go beyond your limitations? I I sat with one person. I was vexed. Every single answer that they gave on a test of their giftings and capacities, you are pastorally hearted. You love people. You care about people. You want to bless them. You want to serve them. You want to lift them up. You want to encourage them. No, I'm not a pastor. Why not? Because I don't want to be called a pastor. Okay, but you are everything that a pastor is. We'll just subtract the title. No. Some people are not serving because they're not willing to step out of their comfort zone. They're not willing to sacrifice. They're not willing to embrace what God is calling them to do because of semantics. God is calling every one of us, whether you're full-time working in the church or full-time working in the world, to be ministers, whatever the context. 
whoever God has pla- wherever God has placed you. So three areas, intimacy, relationship, service. So to come back, I would love for us to be able to say by the end of 2017 that we've taken at least one step, at least one step to living out our passion and our purpose, to saying, you know what, I've, I could not preach the gospel, but I love reaching people. I've learned over the course of this year how to preach the gospel. I was not serving. I'd been sitting in the church for two years or more. I mean, if you've been sitting in the church for one year or more and not serving, we need to talk. If you're jumping from church to church and not serving anywhere, you definitely need for us to have a talk. Because we want to see people growing in the purpose of God for their lives. As long as you are draining and not sowing, you're not stepping towards God's purpose for you. In this church, we believe that everyone is called to be a part of the kingdom. Everyone is called to use their gift for his glory. And so, I'm just trying to think if there's any jokes that I could tell. It would maybe be inappropriate. But just to say to you, please, as my opportunity, I don't know when I'll get a preach again. Just to say to you, please, put it first. Be available. When you come to that bridge and you don't know which way to go, say, Lord, whatever I do, you're going to be first. And start to see what God does in your life. You can take an alcoholic with a violence problem, estranged from family, on the road to nowhere, to being a Bible school principal, doing a master's at King's College London in one of the biggest churches in England. He can do anything. What will you do with him?